Lady, I believe your son is the promised king of his people. What is his name? Jesus. His name is Jesus. It was May 1940, and the Allied British and French troops had been pretty much decimated. More than half a million of them, you know, this was right after Hitler had invaded France. And I was just reading not too long ago that at that point in time, France had the most powerful army. They were considered the most powerful nation on earth, but they weren't ready. Kind of tells you what happens when you're not prepared for something. And so Hitler and the German army just moved in there and pretty much decimated France. But some of the army was still intact. And they joined with the British forces, probably about a half a million of them, and they attacked Germany. Except they were pretty much decimated, down to about 350,000 men, most of them British. In fact, it was a number that included, 350,000, a number that included the entire British army. The entire British army was pushed back towards the sea at a place called the Port of Dunkirk. Maybe you've heard of it. It was on the coast of France. And basically, there were sitting ducks there. There's no place to go. And you really can't call in ships in, in the amount of time that, that it would take. It would be too long to transport them by sea and get them out of there. So there's really nothing. There's no airfield. There's nothing to do. There's sitting ducks. It's over. They were certain to be wiped out at any moment. 350,000 of them. Here's what the Germans were planning on doing. Planning on taking their dominant air force at that time and pretty much bombing and strafing the coast where 350,000 men just waited. And a lot of their military might, a lot of their tanks, a lot of everything that they had had already been wiped out. So they really would just sit there and be bombed and strafed to the last man. And by the way, if the British army is wiped out at that point, then what's left of Britain today would be speaking German and probably us and probably the whole world. Pretty important point in history then, this battle right here. What a lot of people don't know about it is that the British commander at Dunkirk issued a very cryptic three-word message to the people of England. And maybe you've never heard this, but I, I mean, I, I'm a history buff. This moved me to tears. I, I think this is so powerful if you know what it comes from. All he said is the nation knows what's going on. They've heard. And they're sitting there, men, women, children, families, everybody that's not involved realizes if, if they don't get out of this, we're next. We'll be bombed, we'll be done. We'll be just like France. And all he does is get this message by radio to the people. And it's three words. But if not. That's it. But if not. Now, you know what's sad about that? Most people today probably hear that and go, what in the world does that mean? That is cryptic. What does that stand for? But back then, because... You know, people weren't as biblically illiterate as they are now. They knew exactly, even in Britain, which has gone so secular and these days, they knew exactly what that was. You know what that was? It was a reference to the three Hebrews in the book of Daniel. You probably heard of them before, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who refused to bow down to the image of King Nebuchadnezzar that was 90 feet tall and made largely of gold. And they said this, <clears throat> the God we serve is able to save us, King Nebuchadnezzar, but if not, we will not bow down. But if not, we will now. You know what that means? We know. We have so much. We're absolutely positive that God can pluck us right out of this thing. He could do it miraculously. He could do it in a small way, big way. But he may not do it. And that changes nothing. He's still God. 
and you're still not. He's able to save us, we're very confident, but if he does nothing, he's still God, and you're still not, and we're not going to bow down, and we're not going to follow the crowd, even if everybody else does it. It was a message of courage and defiance against impossible odds. Now, the king of England issued, at that point, a call for prayer and a call for help for these men, and before they knew it, here's what happened. This didn't turn into one of those if-nots. It was if-so. The weather forecast changed overnight. I mean, right away, clouds rolled in, fog descended as thick as soup, and... Most importantly, the German Air Force was grounded. I mean, it couldn't fly. It was certain death. There's no way they could see the coast. It was that thick. What's more, it lasted for days. Days and days and days. So what'd they do? Very quickly, nearly 800 fishing boats, yachts, merchant vessels, joined the Navy to ferry those soldiers to safety over the course of 10 days. Imagine how tense that was. I mean, when you're a third of the way done, you still don't have enough over there. Days are going by. You're praying, you're begging God, and you're going, we need, we need more days of this. We need more than a week of this. And you just keep on going. And pretty soon, they got the entire 350,000 of them off that coast. The Germans couldn't even find them. Very quickly, they got them, got them away. This is still called to the day a miracle. It's called the miracle at Dunkirk. You ever heard of it? Thank you. Here's what it did. It turned certain positive, absolute, no denying, annihilation into a big reason for hope. Not just hope right there. Oh, look, God saved us today. We've got hope for these 10 days. It actually turned the tide of really, I think, the whole thing for the British people. Now they had hope for the whole war. I mean, when you see something like this, we, we, were, we were done, and now we're not? That's gotta be God. Not only were they saved, now they're pumped up. You know what, they're no longer victims. I'm sure they had a victim mentality right there. This isn't fair, we're the good guys. Now I think they've, they've more than just been rescued. Now they're, they're not victims, they're victors at this point. It's one of the many reasons and. You know Pastor Rob's going to find a way to tie this into Impact Church, and I do. Many reasons that I think you should think about if you've been sort of shopping or kicking the tires or testing this place out. I think you ought to consider joining hands with the people here at Impact because we're getting, thank you, with Nicole and I and our family, and uh, (laughs) I know that voice anywhere. You know, she once yelled out about five months ago in my life, you know, and I knew I had her support that day more than any other. I won't forget that either. And uh, many, one of the many reasons you ought to join with us for a movement that's getting ready to happen. Here's the biggest reason. I think you ought to consider it. Because God turned your, if you're a believer here today, now just for two seconds I'm going to talk to believers. If you're checking this out, hang on one second, listen, but this is for believers. Don't you realize that God turned your certain annihilation because you're a believer into a blessed and eternal hope? There's your reason right there. Because you were worse than the people on the shore there on the seaside by the port of Dunkirk. You have, and I had, certain annihilation, separation eternally in a real literal place called hell. No matter what Rob Bell says, it's really there. And now you're not. You're adopted into the family of God. So that, that should take you more from thanks for being saved. That should take you from victim to victor for the rest of your life. And if you need a place to experience that victory and build his kingdom, we'd welcome you here. So that was a story, this British one, that still defines and inspires the British people today. Just like many, that's what I love about the Bible, 
among many things, just like many of the stories in this book define us today and, and inspire us today. Don't look at this as some dusty old book of things that, that were relevant thousands of years ago that somehow don't connect to us highly evolved and highly educated people today. I don't think we've changed that much, except in some ways I think we're dumber. How's that for inspiring you? I'll show you in a moment how I think in some ways, in some sinful ways, we are more naive than them. So if we look back and go, what's wrong with those simple-minded people? I'll show you that you're more simple-minded than them. I'll include myself in that, all right? I know I'm more simple-minded than them. But these, these stories, they inspire us. They explain where we came from, if you'll listen closely. And they shed light on who we are, and they guide our steps to move forward in life. It does all of that if you listen. So that's why we're retelling the stories of the Bible in this great series um, called the Bible that's showing on the History Channel. And some of you are going, I know, you remind me every week, and I don't have cable. Find somebody who does and go over to their house and watch this thing. Well, I heard there's flaws in it. That's right. It was made by man, not God. God doesn't have a film crew up there where he's doing this. So there may be one or two things. I haven't found anything in it that isn't easily explainable, okay? It's still a very, very valuable tool. If we could have Harold uh, and Scott come up forward, what I want to do is we're going to get these passed out. These are invite cards. They've got a map and start times not only for each week here at Impact Church, but also for Easter, for the two services that we're having on Easter. These things are only good for your fireplace after Easter, Okay, so we've probably got about 150, 200 of them left. Everybody take maybe two of these. Invite somebody to Impact Church and give them this thing so they know how to get here. And let's fill this place, especially Good Friday and Easter, with those that don't know Jesus Christ. Because the gospel's going out, and I promise you it's going to go out in a powerful way. So take that. That's why we're doing this series, because it tells our stories, and it can define who we are. And it presents a vast variety of, of some of the most powerful stories in all Scripture. Yeah, not all of them. But some of the biggest ones in a unified, consistent way. I told you about two weeks ago that there's a scarlet thread that God has woven throughout the book of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation that ties everything together. And even the Old Testament is really history. It's really his story. Who's his? Who's he? Jesus. This is the book of Jesus. It's his story. The Old Testament predicts his coming. The New Testament is his coming, and, and Revelation talks about when he comes again. So we're retelling these stories and, and hoping to inspire people that are still very, very relevant today in their lives. So the story that we're going to learn from today, if you turn in your Bibles, we're going to be in the book of Daniel, in the book of Daniel. So if you don't know how to get there, turn to the all-familiar book of Ezekiel. <laughs> that should help, and then make a right-hand turn. If that doesn't help, go where you have every daily quiet time to Jonah make a couple lefts, or let your Bible fall open a little bit more towards the back and keep looking. This is a story that inspired that three-letter, I'm sorry, that three-word cable from the beaches of Dunkirk that I mentioned earlier in my comments. It's a story of a time when the entire nation of Israel was reduced to nothing. It wasn't just taking a half a million people and, and shredding that army back to 350,000. They were virtually wiped out as a nation. This would be like wiping out the 350,000 that were at the beach uh, at Dunkirk, going on to England and pretty much decimating that and then taking captive all the young boys and the young girls and taking them away and, and leaving the families just completely, like I said, decimated. It'd be taking it two or three steps further <clears throat> than that inspirational story in Great Britain we heard. It's the story of a time when the entire nation of Israel reduced to rubble felt like victims. 
I mean, it's definitely a time when if you talk to the average Israelite, the average Hebrew, they're going to say, God doesn't love us. God's not fair. God's not listening. We're just victims. No matter what we do, we're victims. Now, I know in the U.S. we can't relate to that. There was kind of an entitlement mentality back here with these people. They thought nothing bad should happen to us. We're God's people. Nothing bad should happen to us. We can do whatever we want. And God just always shows his favor. We're supposed to always be healthy and wealthy and prosperous. And no matter what we do, even if we don't care about God, we're his people. It's automatic. But now we're victims. This isn't fair. We're entitled. Again, I know in America, entitlement's something we don't get. We don't really realize. But try. Try and see if any of this relates. So they felt like victims, but God had a plan. God was going to use this, as he does for every one of us. His plan was to work their salvation in such a way that they would turn from victims to victors. And you know what? Anytime there's pain and trials in your life, here's the really good news. Anytime there's pain and trials in your life, if you're a believer, that's what God's doing. He's trying to get you to turn from being a victim to a victor. Some of you say, but my whole life is trials. Seems like I go from one trial to the next to the next. Then let me tread gingerly here like you know I always do. And let me just say maybe you're not learning to be a victor. Maybe you still have that entitlement mentality, spiritually speaking. Maybe you still feel like a victim and God's trying to say you're a victor in me. Or maybe you're connecting a victor with his rescue only. Maybe you haven't learned to say but if not, right? Maybe instead of but if not, you're going if not deals off God. You don't do it, God. Here's how it works. I don't follow you. You rescue me all the time. You give me money. You give me perfect health or I don't follow you. You don't find that deal in Scripture. You find that way before any kind of blessing or anything, people seem to make the deal with God way before that with the but if not. In other words, it doesn't matter what happens to me. I love you, Lord. End of story. Now let's talk about what happens next. I think we've got the cart before the horse a little bit here. <clears throat> God had a plan for them. God's got a plan for you too. Man, that's a, that's a tired, often used up Christian saying, I, I know that, but I mean it. I know every time you turn on the TV and you listen to a televangelist or something, God has a plan for your life, right? <laughs> but he really does. Not only do they say it, they have that clutch. That's called a clutch preacher. And they shift gears and they say, I don't know why. Why does this matter today? Why does this story, when you open up your Bible and you're like, blow off the dust, read the story and go, wow, <laughs> what, what does that have to do with today? Why, is it, why, does it, why are you talking about entitlement? Why are you talking about all this stuff, Pastor? How, what does it have to do? Well, because I was obviously being facetious and I was kidding. We live in a culture and a society that not only encourages but practically worships a victim mentality. I mean, it's autumn. It's practically worshipped. I mean, we are taught, we're, it's beat into us when we're little kids that we are victims of everything. This bizarre notion that anything bad happens to us isn't fair. Isn't fair. And let me tell you something. Sometimes when bad things happen to us, look up here. It isn't fair. I'm with you. Believe me, I've had things happen in my life that absolutely were not fair. Sometimes things happen to us and you've got to admit they're fair. What if you cheat on a test? Where were you high schoolers again in junior high? You there? Raise your hands. Raise your hands. He just talked about cheating. I don't want to raise my hand. Where's he going with this? 
Or raise your hand. Raise your hand, high schoolers. Keep them up if you've ever cheated. No, I'm not going to say that. I'm not going <laughs> to. But listen, you cheated a test or something, and then you get caught, and you're going, it's not fair. I always work really hard in this class, and I do my best, and now you're, <laughs> but you cheated. We're not talking about what you always do. We're talking about right now what you did. And so for that, this result actually is fair. It is fair. It's bizarre hearing this kind of mentality. An even more ridiculous mentality that goes with it is that even when we are directly responsible, we somehow never are. I mean, not you guys, but culture out there. Have you noticed that? Not us in here at Impact. We've, we're, we, we have this down. But aren't they bizarre out there in the world? Like how rights to the perpetrators of crimes seem to be greater than the rights of the people they've committed the crimes against. Bizarre. Like paying off loans and debts for those who simply don't feel like paying them off as a nation. I can't believe I'm in this. It's not fair. Everybody, I mean, they're making a great, I lost my job, I did this. Well, did you sign up for that loan? Yes. Can you pay it now? No. Should you pay it? Yes, you signed up for it. You, you still should. Some of you give me a blank stare like you don't, you don't get it. It's so ingrained in us, we're going, no, I shouldn't. No, I shouldn't. You should. The Bible says let your yes be yes and your no be no. You shouldn't even have to have a 50-page contract, 50, 50,000-page 50, contract on it, trying to cover every contingency of getting out of it. So this is important because it's sort of this life's not fair mentality that leads to an entire society that bears no responsibility for anything, a society that instead feels entitled to everything. That's mine. That's mine. Why? Because I'm me. What other country on the face of the earth says that should be, and some of this is, some of this is actually good, but a lot of it's not. But what other country has there ever been that says, I deserve that because of two things. One of them's going away. One of them's going away. Here it is. I, I'm a Christian in America. Well, forget that one. But how about this? That should be mine. Why? Because I'm an American. Try saying that in Europe. <laughs> Try going around the world and saying, well, I should have that. Why? Well, I'm an American. After they beat the snot out of you, because they just don't like Americans a lot of times, try, try saying that there. I mean, it's a foreign, obviously, mentality though. Really? Just because you're... So we have this. So this lesson actually is going to be harder for us to get today than it was for them back then. But if we get it, Man, you can move from victimhood to victory. This is worth it. It really is. So important to not only understand this, but also to live up to it. Because we can't possibly make that journey that I'm talking about this morning from victim to victor. We can't even make the journey if we're starting off headed in the wrong direction. Listen, I live in Monroe. Yeah, I know, I'm not proud of it. But I live in Monroe. <laughs> and today, if I, if I get in the car to go home and I want to go to Monroe, if I head to Fort Mill, I'm not going to go to Monroe, Right? It's pretty easy, but when you talk about things spiritually, we head in the wrong direction on purpose and somehow get mad at God when we don't end up in the other direction. It's really not hard. But we go, that's not fair. And God goes, but you, you went north or, or you went south and now you're mad that you ended up, everything in your life went south. That's where you had it. It's where you pointed your steps. Don't get upset. Now, that's kind of the heavy stuff, and some of you are going, yeah, that's heavy. So here's the good stuff. There's good news for you and me this morning. I think in this, there's, there's great news. God's plan for us is not the plan of a victim. I don't find that in Scripture. 
We like to victimize ourselves, but God never has that plan, ever, in Scripture. That's why the stories in the book of Daniel are so important. They give us some inspiring insights in how God's great salvation changes us from victims to victors. And the first insight that you want to write down, I'm going to give you three or four of these things. Might be three, might be four. That's why I said three or four. And I'm going to give them to you in order, and I promise you I'm going to give them to you. I often get complaints that, what is right? He can't count. He skips things. I'm going to try this morning. Number one, I can be victorious because there is a God in heaven. Well, that's, how does that link up? It should be pretty self-explanatory. But you can be victorious because there's a God in heaven. All right, let me look at it this way. Everybody, come put your pens down. That wasn't that long a point. Look up here. I mean, every time I say look up here, I get like half of you to look up. The rest of you, what am I, Quasimodo ringing the bell? Is it that hard to look? Let's look. <laughs> Connect. How many of you eat, fam- eat family dinners together? Okay. Picture that's happening right now in your mind. You're sitting there with your kids. Some of you going, I don't have any kids. You do now for this. All right? So imagine you have kids. You got boys and girls. I only got girls. Now you have boys. So you're sitting around the dinner table. And it's actually one of, those, one of those good dinners where you're talking about your day and it's fantastic and you're, it's a good one. Everybody's laughing and, and, and having a good time together and it, it just seems like your family's really tight, this one. Sometimes you argue and fuss, but not tonight. It's a great night. And special family time. You wish you had more of these times. And you're just so caught off guard this time because out of the blue, it's like some, somebody took a, a ramming rod and just smashed the front door. You hear this huge explosion, and almost at the same time, some windows break open, and the back doors push open, and men in military uniforms come pouring into the house. You're sitting around the dinner table. Maybe you're one of those people that has a gun, but you can't even get up and and get to the gun. You can't even move before AK-47s, Russian-made, now AK-107s or whatever, are trained on you, three or four on each member of your family, and you can't move, and they tell you not to move or they'll blow your brains out. And you're sitting there, and you know, in, in my family, it would be, I've got a boy and a girl, and they're both working in children's church today, so I can't use them as an illustration, but Nathan's sitting there, and Juliana's sitting there, and they grab Nathan by the back of the shirt and stand him up and put him over in a corner and put a gun on him. I try to get up, they sit me down, tell me the next time I get up, they're going to blow my brains out. And I'm looking at Michelle, she's looking at me. Tears are coming down her face. We're completely stunned. We don't have any idea what this is about. A couple more go to pick Juliana up and put her in the corner. Then I really go ballistic and they smash me in the head with a butt of the rifle. And the one guy who speaks broken English and not Russian tells us that you've been, you've been taken over and this is going on in homes all over. And here's how it's going to go. We're taking your son, we're taking your daughter, and we're taking him back to Russia. And we're going to raise him there. We're going to raise them with our doctrine. And in fact, we struck before you could, and there's nothing you can do. This war was over before it started. You'll never see your kids again. And you look at them as they're taking them out of the house, and Nathan looks back over his shoulder at me, and Juliana looks back at me, and tears are pouring out, and they're screaming back, and there's nothing they can do, and they are gone. And I'll spend the rest of my life unable to get back over there, get over to Russia and ever see them. At that moment, I'm, I'm, well, I'm going to have a lot of time. Michelle's going to have a lot of time to think. How did we raise them up? What kind of foundation did we leave them? Because what are they going to give them over there? How are they going to raise them up? See, 
you look at that and you read these stories and you blow the dust off the Bible and you go, how does that relate? Well, that's exactly what happened to the Hebrews. The Babylonians busted into every house. They took away the teenagers from age of about 12, maybe 11, on up to 18, 19, possibly 20, and took all of them out of Jerusalem and all of, of uh, Israel where they attacked and took them into captivity 500 miles away. And you go, well, that's not so bad. Well, it is if there's no cars and there's no hope and there's an army so powerful that you'll never see them. They might as well have blasted them off to Mars. It's over. And you look at that and you think, how did, how did I train them up? How did I raise them? And the fact is, this judgment happened to Israel because they weren't following God. So most of the parents would have had to know, I didn't raise them right. They're going to be lost to God now. Because all we did was play around and worship money and live a comfortable life. And I really didn't tell them anything. How are they going to know it now? But there were a few families that raised them up in the fear and the admonition of the living God. And so they were set. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, they were covered. Fortunately, they were going to make it because of the way they had been raised. Man, but the rest of me, as far as pointing them to Christ and teaching them that eternal things matter more than earthly things, time's up. Time's up. The book of Daniel in our Bible is named for the main figure in the story, obviously. He's one of the many exiles that were forcibly taken from their homes when Jerusalem was conquered by King Nebuchadnezzar. And the kingdom of Judah ended by the nation of Babylon. Daniel's story may have looked like it was ending. Shadrach's story, Meshach's story, Abednego's story might have looked like it was ending, but you know what? Might have definitely looked like they were victims. But their stories were just beginning. They were just beginning. Now I'll tell you something. I hope we never face anything like that. You can see hints that maybe we will someday with the way our nation is going. Maybe we could. And just when you think we can't, that's when, we're vic- that's when we easily could happen. But I have to tell you, I look at my kids and I, and, I, and I think, and I'll tell you, not in a bragging way, but in a way because I believe in the Lord God Almighty. I, I think Nathan, Juliana, would be ready. I think they'd be ready. I think they'd stand firm. I hope we all know that about our kids. But Daniel's story was just beginning. He became an advisor to the very king who had tried to make victims of him and all his people, as this clip from the Bible miniseries shows us. Zedekiah is the last of King David's descendants to reign. The Israelite monarchy ends here. Jeremiah is one of the few to escape. He heads to Egypt, never to return. their prophet, their city, and their king. 
needs a different kind of leader to survive in Babylon. A man like Daniel. Daniel has visionary powers and is forced to work in Nebuchadnezzar's court. Has no one anything to tell me? Can you not even describe my dream? Silence is no answer. You're supposed to be wise men. Sorcerers. Seers. So what do you see? Sire. Forgive me. No one here can read your mind. Then what use are any of you? My God can. He has shown me your dream. Then you will be able to tell it to me. Every detail. You saw a giant statue of a man. Its head made of gold. Then a giant stone struck the statue, smashing it to pieces. I know that much! What does it mean? The statue represents the empires that will follow yours. Yours is the greatest. The head of gold. And the star that destroys the statue. That is the kingdom of God. In the future, God will reign over all the world. Forever. Destroyed by God. Yes, sire. What's your name? Daniel. You're a brave man, Daniel. I value that. You will serve me. The scene that we just saw describes what happens in the book of Daniel, chapter two. One day the king had a dream and no one in his court could explain the dream, so he issued an order to kill them all, which seems kind of extreme. But you gotta remember, this was the days, in the days before pink slips could be issued and people could be fired, so it's just the easiest thing to do, kill everybody. Now, what did he say could be the one way you could get out of all his advisors, all his sorcerers, all his seers, every wise man, including the Hebrews that were wise, anybody who had studied mathematics, anything, all the wisdom people, dead. Start over after that. Unless you can not just interpret the dream, think about it. Anybody can interpret a dream. There's people that make a living today interpreting people's dreams, and it's a bunch of bunk. 
So Nebuchadnezzar said, why don't you tell me what I dreamt? That's a little more challenging, isn't it? It's a little more challenging. And so Daniel, through the power of the Holy Spirit, told him what he dreamt and told him what it meant and saved the lives of not only himself, but all, even the evil diviners who would later reward him by trying to plan, plan his death. That's where we'll all turn to Daniel 2, verses 25 to 28. Let me read it. <clears throat> Arioch took Daniel to the king at once and said, I've found a man among the exiles of Judah who can tell the king what his dream means. And the king asked Daniel, also called Belteshazzar. So let's stick with Daniel. I mean, remember our Russians taking over. That's renaming your kids like being called Alexander or Lev or Mikhail. They're, they're going to give you whole new names. You can't even be called what you were. Are you able to tell me what I saw in my dream? Then interpret it. Daniel replied, no wise man, enchanter, magician, or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he asked about. You know, he could have said this a different way. That probably ticked the king off. But he wanted to make it real plain. I can't do this. What a humble statement. Today we have people in the Lord's work who seem to give all the glory to themselves, right? They want to be very careful. No, I can't do it. But I serve a God who can. Just know when this happens, it won't be me, it'll be him. There is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in the days to come. That's the purpose of this dream. So it's much the same scene shown in the video, except that the clip summarized Daniel's wording, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, with the phrase, but my God can. There's a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And because of that truth, you do not need to be a victim. There's a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. Because of that, you do not need to resign yourself to your current circumstances. There's a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. So you don't have to settle for the status quo any more than Daniel did. No matter what you're going through, in fact, take off the mysteries part. Just this, there is a God in heaven. Fill in the rest. No matter what you're going through, because there's a God in heaven, fill in the rest. He faced a royal decree, a kingly contract on his life, but there's a God in heaven might feel like your situation today is impossible, but there's a God in heaven. See what a difference it makes? You know, I'm amazed at atheists. Man, I, I think if I really believe that, I'd just end my life. What is there to live for if you think we're just primordial amoebas that crawled out of, you know, some soup long ago and evolved? We're, we're nothing. We're meaningless. We're random. We're by chance. But if you know there's a God in heaven who cares about you, and all of a sudden life has meaning. You may be burdened by sin, you might be burdened by sickness, but there's a God in heaven. You may see no way to improve your dead-end marriage, but there's a God in heaven. You may feel like nobody sees your value, you can't get a job, you've been un unemployed forever, but there's a God in heaven. <clears throat> My wife Michelle was telling me about a friend, we've been tracking her for about five years now, she's been battling cancer. She's such a strong Christian. She wrote a poem. When we were in the prayer room today, just praying about it, she brought it up, and she wrote the most beautiful poem. She's now got a couple weeks to live. Got two girls, a seven-year-old and a nine-year-old, and has been taking this journey with them for five years. She's completely healthy. It looks like she's beat it, then she's sick again, then completely healthy, then sick again, and, and now it looks like God's calling her home, and she still has the greatest attitude. It's way better than probably 90% of ours. Why? When I heard her telling the latest this morning, it came down to what we're hearing right now. She lives in a different plane. There's a God in heaven, and she can't wait to get home. Now that she knows it's her time to go home, she can't wait to get home. There's a God in heaven. 
That's not all, because Daniel's story is our story in another way too. That is, number two, write this down. I can be victorious because my God is able to deliver. Just the fact that he's able. Not that he always will, but he can. Whenever he wants, my God is able. False gods aren't able even if they want to, and they can't even want to because they don't have a brain. They're not real. Daniel chapter 3. That chapter tells a memorable story of a golden image the king had made, and it was mammoth, about 90 feet tall, height of a nine-story building, and he issued a command that everybody needed to bow down to that image, and everyone did, except, I mean, they had to all come to this one area. He didn't make a bunch of 90-foot statues with gold on them. He made one, and so from all over the kingdom, he had to come at this certain time in, uh, during the month, and everybody, a sea of people, would have had to bow down when the music played. So imagine if there's hundreds of thousands of people bowing down. It looks like Mecca would today. But you got these three people standing up. What would that look like? What would that look like at Mecca today? They'd probably stand out, probably make a few people angry. That's what happened here. Everybody bowed down when the music played, except for three Jews whose Babylonian names were Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Everybody else pretended the 90-foot statue was a god but they called it an idol. So they stood. Everyone else bowed down, but they didn't. Everybody else called it harmless entertainment, but they called it porn. Everyone else bowed down, but they didn't. Everybody else called it love, but they called it adultery. Everyone else bowed down, but they didn't. Everybody else called it a choice, but they called it a child. Everyone else bowed down, but they didn't. Pastor, how can we relate to this today? Don't you see our culture bowing down? It's not a 90-foot statue, but we've got a million 90-foot statues. When everybody else does, when the music of this culture plays, what are you going to do? Oh, I'm going to stand, Pastor Rob, and how have you been strengthening your knees? How have you been strengthening your legs spiritually? So when the music of culture plays, and it's got a lot of pressure in it, this music, how do you know you're not going to buckle? I'm just not, not enough, not good enough. This culture is going to push down on your shoulders and force your knees down like you're squatting 3,000 pounds. You're going to go down unless somehow, spiritually, you've strengthened your knees. They didn't bow. And that's where we'll pick up the story in Daniel 3, verse 13. Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these men were brought before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of the gold that I've set up? Now when you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, the pipe, the electric guitar, the drum, the bass, the keyboard, if you're ready now to fall down and worship the image I've made, then very good. All's forgotten, all be forgiven, but if you do not worship it, you'll be thrown in immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God would be able to rescue you from my hand? He's cocky, isn't he? Nebuchadnezzar doesn't hear about him being a god. He doesn't think that's the press going out to the people. He thinks that's the truth. Nebuchadnezzar thinks he's a god. Just like some of the Roman Caesars thought. You know, enough people tell you stuff like that and you'll believe it. That's how a pathological liar is made. Did you know that? Somebody lies enough, then they lie more, then they see it gets you out of some things, seems to put you into others. Then you tell yourself you're something and you tell yourself you're something long enough and guess what? You believe it. it becomes your reality comes your reality. And that's what happened. He thought he was a god. So he's infuriated that they won't bow down and worship an obvious god. 
And boy, when they stood up in that sea of people, nothing half-hearted about that, huh? Listen, this isn't a hand quickly put up in a salvation message about I prayed a prayer. Uh-oh, somebody looked down. Okay, just keep your hands up if you really are, are going to receive Christ and the hands up. You know, this isn't one of those, you know, deal, or this isn't one of those. Raise your hands if you prayed that prayer. <laughs> Raise your hand. I hope he sees it right here. Look, Pastor. This isn't one of those, would you stand and come forward and, and, and just be identified? I'll stand and, and um, stretch your shirt out and sit down real quick. Now, I mean, everybody's going to see you, and you're going to keep on standing, and you're going to identify. There's going to be no doubt. These young men, they, they, they really weren't fans of Jesus. Man, they're, they're followers. They're sold out, fully committed followers of the living God. Listen, gang, I am all for you. Anyone who's been following our, our ministry my wife for, for years knows I'm, I am all for being sensitive to people checking out the faith. Sometimes people call it seeker sensitive. I know that that has a lot of connotations with it. It's a shame because what's the alternative to being seeker sensitive? Anybody? Seeker hostile, right? Well, we're not going to be seeker hostile at this church. You know, if you don't know God, get out! Sinner, no, we're not going to. We're going to be, I want to create an environment where you can check out the faith. But at some point, gang, at some point, you've put enough icing on the cake, right? I mean, at some point, you, you, you've made it comfortable enough. You, you, at some point, you, you, you've given enough incentives to where they need to make a move. Listen, when somebody is drowning, we don't make deals with them. They don't ask for deals. You throw them a life preserver, whatever, and they better grab it, right? Grab that life preserver. I'm drowning. Throw me something. Grab it. What else do you have to offer? You ever, say, you ever even heard of that? I want to be saved, but do you have any money? No, at that point it doesn't matter. Here's a life preserver. Where do you shop at? I want some new clothes. What kind of car can I get if I grab that? What? You're dying. Grab it. We don't seem to understand this. So today what I am a little bit worried about is that we offer so many incentives, so many bribes. Come follow Christ. You don't want to? What if I give you this? Come follow Christ and, and see that he'll give you a great life and an abundant life and he'll bless you. How much will he bless me? I got a pretty good life now. But you're going to hell. I don't know if I really believe that. Well, gang, here's a problem there. You're not going to reach out for a life preserver if you don't think you're drowning. Right? I mean, if you don't really think you're going to drown, then you'll just keep flailing around until you drown. <clears throat> So there's a limit to the effectiveness of promises of comfort and God will make you perfectly healthy and, and he'll give you great wealth and a problem-free life and I promise there won't be any trials. See, what all this does eventually is it can weaken the knees of Christians when it comes time to stand firm against the idols of this world. Too much fluff in your legs won't support you when the music of this culture begins to play. They won't. They'll give. But there does come a time in every believer's life when they must stand firm and be counted for Christ. By the way, want to know a good way to build up your spiritual leg strength to reinforce those doctrinally wobbly knees that a lot of Christians have? <clears throat> Practice taking up your cross daily. Practice taking up your cross daily and walking with that a mile in the shoes of the Lord. It says, you must, if any man would come after me and follow me, you must take up your cross and follow me. 
not take up your life. You must somehow submit to a very rich life. I know you don't want to do this. You must admit, you, you must be willing to be comfortable. You must be willing to have perfect health. If you follow me, just understand this. You're never going to get sick. I don't see that offer in Scripture. And I don't, you know, my, my wife and I, we were at a dance competition with my uh, daughter yesterday, and it's one of those that's, you know, I think the first six hours were good, but around the 11th hour, we got there in the morning and, and we were home around 11 at night, and we saw, we didn't see that many dance numbers. What do you think, six, 700 dance numbers? And, and I just think, and I, I went and I weighed myself, and I, and I didn't eat anything in the morning, and I went out and I got a little, little bit of pizza, me and my son, all right, we got a bunch of buffalo wings and two large pizzas. But I went home and I gained like three pounds and I'm trying to lose weight. And I thought, you know, there's, you can't lose weight when you're sitting around all day comfortable. Can you? I, I learned that a very painful way. We both learned it. We're just sitting there going, wow, there's a phenomenon we should have known. It's the same thing spiritually. You can't build up your leg strength to stand firm against this culture when you're doing nothing but seeking comfort. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. Doesn't matter what everybody thinks. If we're thrown into the blazing fire, in the, in the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand, but even if he does not. There it is again. But if not. That simple three-word phrase that we were talking about before. You know what that tells us that you might not have picked up on? That tells us that there was no sense of entitlement in the minds of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego at all. It's a foreign concept to them. It wasn't, but if not, we're suing. I'll bring a lawsuit against you so fast it'll make your head spin if you put us in that furnace. You even talk about that fire. You even rub a matchstick against some flint and you're, that's it. But if not, we'll riot. There's enough of us here now. We will riot. We will rise up if not. If not, I'm going to bust a cap in you. <laughs> in fact, today's culture has changed so much that we don't even need, have you noticed this? We don't even, even need but if not. Have you noticed that? We're, we're, here's how bad it is today. But if so, I'm still going to sue you. There may be an angle. Hey, if we win, if my team wins, I think I'll burn the city down. Why? Because I, I can. Where does that come from? See, this is why I, I thought, as I was getting ready to preach this this week, I thought, it's going to be harder for us to get as a culture today than it was for them. We don't, even, we don't even think logically anymore. But if not, then I may turn on God. Forget, but if not, even if God does everything for me, even if he blesses my socks off, I'd probably still turn from him. You see both in the Bible. But not Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. We're just not going to do it, ever. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude toward them changed. Wow, I thought it was bad already. And he ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the fiery furnace. The king's command was so urgent. Now, this is blown over a lot. Listen closely. And the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego 
And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace, okay? So you've got these incredibly huge NFL stars, you know, grabbing these, these, these young, small, brave Hebrew kids, and they're getting so close to the furnace, it's just building, it's just, flames are coming out of the thing. It's, it's out of control, hot. And as they get close, they can't even get close enough to throw them in, but they've got her, that's the orders, and as they get close, the flames come out and kill the soldiers, but they managed to get the three of them in there, and it still looks like, wow, it hit the soldiers, but it didn't hit them. Well, they're dead now, or so you'd think. It may not be flames, but you and I, let me just say me for now. Sometimes in the same position they were. I mean, I'm a child of God, or let's take all of us. We're children of God. Sometimes we face difficult situations. Sometimes we face difficult choices. We have to decide between compromise and conviction. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand if you've ever had this, because you've had it. If you don't recognize that you've had it, it may be that you're already compromised. Can't even see it. And we too can be victorious because, as they told the king, our God whom we serve is able. See, I'm going to say that the victory happened for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego way before where most of you think it was. And you're going to find out in a moment where most people think it is, but I don't think they have it right. Let's see how this episode concludes, starting in verse 24. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leapt to his feet in amazement. Now try to see this happening. The king, you know, who's trying to stay composed, he leaps up and here's what he sees. He asks his advisors, weren't there three men in the fire that we just threw in? Weren't there three? I see four. Don't miss this. They replied, certainly, your majesty. He said, look, I, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound, unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Some people think that's an angel. I don't. Most theologians think that was what's referred to theologically as a theophany. Do you know what that is? That's a pre-incarnate appearance of God. That's Jesus Christ in the furnace with them, walking with them, talking with them. That's what Nebuchadnezzar saw, saying to them, you'll not be harmed. And they're going, yeah, we figured that out. (laughs) Doing pretty good in here. I'm with you. I'm always with you. I wonder what he said in there, don't you? I wonder if it's kind of like when they get out of there. When you guys get out of this, you're going to be even stronger than ever. When you get out of this, things are going to change. Let's take a few minutes to watch the king freak out, because that's fun. (laughs) But when you guys get out of here, you'll be leaders. They're going to raise you up a lot higher than this, because not every day does this happen. Stay strong. Because sometimes it's harder to stay strong when everybody's following you and you're a ruler than it is when you're down here. So this will be another test. Stay strong and remember this moment and don't ever forget, I'm able to save you. I did save you. I love you. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, well, let's back up. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace, not too close from what he saw. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God. He's changed his tune. I thought that was him. Come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire, and the satraps, prefects, governors, and royal advisors crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not only not harmed their bodies, there wasn't even a hair of their head singed, nor their robe scorched. There wasn't even the smell of fire on them. See, when God does a miracle, he does it in an undeniable way. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You know, the Bible says if you do not worship, If you continue to deny worship to the living God, then God said, well, then if they had not cried out, then something is coming up for Easter. It's called Palm Sunday. 
And the Pharisees, when Jesus was, was riding in on the full of a donkey into the town and everybody's worshiping him, the Pharisees got upset and said, stop your disciples, they're letting praise come to you like that. And Jesus said to them, if they didn't praise me here, then the very rocks and stones would have cried out. Every knee will bow sometime. Here's Nebuchadnezzar, the one who thought he was a god five minutes ago, saying, the God of the most, the God, the most high God, the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now this story is not a guarantee. Don't see this wrong. This is absolutely not a guarantee that you and I will be bailed out of injury and pain in every trial that we enter. I know that firsthand. You all do too. It's a story to tell you that your God is able. And maybe more than a sense of of entitlement or that the only thing that's fair is a bailout every time, God's after something else. Maybe he's just after a heart that knows I can serve him even if he doesn't. What's that worth? That kind of confidence to the world when you go through trials, what's it worth? They're going through the same trials. They don't have anything to put their confidence in. All of a sudden they look at you going through the trial like Michelle's friends. What's her name? Ashlyn? Like Ashlyn. That makes no sense to the world. She's dying. She should be like Job's wife who said, curse God and die, right? But she's not. She loves him more. That makes no sense. So the world is going to ask, Ashlyn, where do you get that power? Where do you get that love and grace? How can you face this like that? So it's not a guarantee, but let's remember the promise of Psalm 34, 17. The righteous cry out and the Lord hears them. He delivers them from all their troubles in their heart. Maybe not physically, totally, every time, but in their heart. You know, some preachers and TV evangelists, they teach that if you are in God's will, absolutely every time the sign must be that you will always have a blessed life. The blessed life means that you'll have, God wants for you health, wealth, and prosperity. That is the pinnacle, the sign. But that's simply not borne out in Scripture. We have to be careful when I say that because sometimes God does bless you that way. But there's not some formula. In fact, if that were all true, all the time, then I think we shouldn't be meeting as a church here today. I think we should all go home. And I think that we all should make sure that we watch the finals in the NBA. I think we should worship every Sunday when NFL season starts up. Because they're obviously pretty healthy to be able to play professional sports. A lot of them are very, very wealthy, right? And a lot of them are popular and prosperous. So if that's the formula, then those are the gods we ought to worship. Oops, I forgot we already do most of the time. But you see how dangerous that is if viewed as a formula? Do you see it? Please tell me you see it, Impact Church, please. God can and loves his children and can bless them that way and often does. But it's no guarantee. And if you're holding out for that, then when he doesn't bless you like that, not only will you not say, but if not, you'll end up saying, I'm better than that. I'm entitled. And God, you're not fair. It's impossible to be a testimony to walk with God when you don't think he's fair and you don't even like him. So, let's remember the resolute faith of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They said to the king, God is able to deliver us, but if not, and I want to suggest to you that it was at that moment that they became victors. When did they, become, when did they have victory? As soon as they said the three words, 
But if not, game over. It does not matter what he does. God is God and you are not, period. In fact, I wonder if God might be more inclined to come through in a miraculous way if we already had that settled in our hearts. You know, a lot of people in America, they go, I don't know, I mean, I don't know if I believe this stuff in the Bible, all these miracles, I don't see that. They're experiencing a lot of this in other places in the world. Why don't we? Because maybe we don't trust that God, the only God. Maybe we don't even like him. Maybe we don't think he's fair. Maybe we think we're better. Maybe we think we're gods. Maybe we think we're entitled. Maybe we've got it wrong. But you and I can have that kind of confidence because our God is able to deliver us. He was able to save Noah and his family from the flood that we looked at. He's able to save the whole nation of, of Israel from bondage in Egypt. He was able to save the kingdom of Israel from, through David from the Philistines, the Moabites, the Edomites. He's able. And finally, number three, I can be victorious because my God sent. My God sent. Years later, after Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon had been conquered by a new king, a new empire rose up. Daniel is an old man now, and he's still serving in the royal courts and still faithfully praying to God three times a day. In fact, he's living more all out as an 80-year-old than he ever was. But others among the court officials resented Daniel. And here's where we get to one of the most famous stories of the Bible. Daniel just keeps being raised up now with a whole new empire and a whole new king because they conquered Babylon and Daniel's more popular than ever. They can't beat this guy. They're so jealous of him. So they look at him and go, there's, there's nothing we can get him on because he doesn't mess up. You know what? No man except Jesus Christ who is the God man has ever not sinned. But there's two people in scripture that no sin in their life has ever mentioned. Daniel's one of them. You can read the whole book of Daniel, every account, everything there is about Daniel, nothing he ever did wrong is in there. And Joseph is the other one. And Joseph's got a lot of chapters in Genesis, but it never mentions what he did wrong. So they're a picture of Christ. So they couldn't find anything in Daniel's life that he did wrong. And so they decide to go after what he's doing right. Hey, king, let's make a decree that only 30 days, it'll really help your popularity and really help people see you in a better light. Let's say that people have to worship you and pray to you as God. Hadn't we already seen this fail with Nebuchadnezzar? But doesn't matter. And Darius agrees that this is a good thing, and so they issue a decree. Only Daniel prays three times a day. And he opens the window, not to make a show of it, but he believes that God's people are, are the Jews and that Israel is God's city where the temple is. And so he always opens the windows facing where Israel is, where Jerusalem is, and he prays that way in faith. So he doesn't skip a beat. As soon as he hears about this decree, he's going to keep on opening his window and he's going to keep on praying, even though they said if anyone's caught not praying, they'll be put to death. Now, I know someone's probably sitting there going, 30 days, it's not that long. God knows I love them. I could probably go 30 days without praying. Some of you are like, I know I could do that. I go 30 days without praying all the time. And there's no pressure on me. Some of you are like, I'm incredibly spiritually athletic. I could go a year. But these plotters knew that Daniel couldn't. Or wouldn't. And they're right. So even after the decree is signed, Daniel continued his three-time daily prayer. So the king, though he loved Daniel, Scripture says, when the governors and the satraps and all came and told him this, he was broken. He didn't have any choice. He's got to throw him into the lion's den. Now, the lion's den thing was pretty much a guarantee that you're going to die. 
lot of lions in there, male lions, very hungry, uh, starved actually. So they wouldn't feed them, you know, leading up to this event. So that as soon as their feet hit the ground, the lions would be on them. And that was what the deal was supposed to be here. Daniel didn't listen, so he was thrown into the lion's den. Now, I don't know if you've ever been at the lion's area in the zoo at feeding time. Anybody? Do you people get out? Three people been to the zoo? Z-O-O, zoo. Animals, cages. All right. Let me fill you in. I've been there. When fresh meat is thrown into the lions, they don't waste time. I've been out to lunch with some of you. It's like some of you at a buffet at all-you-can-eat deal. It's not quite that bad, but close. I mean, you're on it. They get down to business. But after the king suffered a sleepless night, the Bible says this in Daniel 6, 19 through 23, and this is the last bit. We'll close here because I've, I've actually gone my average time every week. In the first light of dawn, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den, and when he came near the den, he called out to Daniel in an anguished voice, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually. And look at what he believes here. So why did he do this dumb 30-day decree? Daniel, servant of the living God. Well, then why'd you act like God? It's amazing what pride can do, huh? That's the cue for the band. Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually been able to rescue you from even the lions? Daniel answered, an 80-year-old man, may the king live forever, which is kind of a cheap shot because he's not going to. My God sent his angel and he shut the mouths of the lions. They have not hurt me. And they're hungry but they're about to be fed. Because I was found innocent in his sight, nor have I ever done any wrong before you, your majesty. The king was overjoyed and gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den. And when Daniel was lifted from the den, no wound was found on him because he had trusted in the Lord. The story goes on to say that those governors that set him up and their families were thrown in the lion's den and that was, they were gone. Same lions, gone like that. Let me focus on verse 22. Notice, Daniel said, my God sent his angel and he shut the mouths of the lions. My God sent his angel. My God sent. Daniel was saved because God sent someone. You know, you and I can say the same thing. A lot of you sitting here can say the same thing. How so? I've never been in a... In our case, what's different is God didn't send an angel but someone even greater than an angel. He sent his son. We've been given some, people say, I wish I lived in the days of miracles. No, you don't. You have something better than a representative of God. You have God. The most familiar verse in the Bible puts it this way. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever trusted in him, believed in him, would not perish, would be saved and have eternal life. I can be victorious over temptation and sin because my God sent, see, these are pretty simple things. I don't know why we get it. I can be victorious over shame and guilt because my God sent. Over death and the devil because my God sent. Over evil and filth and all kinds of addictions because my God sent. And you can too. Bow your heads and close your eyes. How do I do this, Pastor? You trust. What's this going to cost me? Well, in a sense, nothing. Because there's nothing you can actually do, gang, to make yourself worthy or righteous before God. But 
there is something you can believe, in someone you can believe. The rescue's already been secured. Do you know what it comes down to, gang? You are drowning. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are flailing and drowning, and it's only a matter of time before spiritually and for all eternity, you go under. This culture and this world may fool you for a time into believing that you're not drowning, but when you go under and when you take in that water and it fills your lungs, you're going to know you made a mistake of eternal consequences. But you can look around you right now, reach out and grab something that's been sitting there for 2,000 years. Adoption certificate into the family of God. If you just admit what everybody in your life knows, but sometimes we don't know about ourselves, that you're a sinner, that you have messed up, and you reach out and trust Jesus Christ for what he did, in a moment's time, in an instant, you can pass from death to life. In fact, if that's you and you want to be saved this moment, with every head bowed and eyes closed, it'd be an honor for me if you'd let me pray with you. Just pray in your heart after me. Now, what I say is not important. The important thing here is you're talking to God. You are talking to the living God. Ask Him to save you. Pray with me now. If you're done flailing, if you're done worshiping the idols of this world, you want to live victorious. If you're done being a victim, if you want to move from victimhood to victorious living, you can do so now. Pray with me. Father God, thank you for sending your Son. Lord Jesus, thank you for leaving your throne above, wrapping around you human flesh, living a sinless life, not turning back, going to that cross and giving your life for me upon that cross, for paying a price I could not pay. I love you, Lord. In my life, I've sinned. I want to call it what it is. I've done wrong. I've sinned. Please forgive me. And please come into my heart. I trust in you. Save me, Lord Jesus. Bring me home, Lord Jesus, into your family. Adopt me. Lift me up. Strengthen my knees that they won't buckle anymore to this culture. Make me strong like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Thank you for saving me. For the rest of my life, Lord Jesus, help me to live it all out for you. I pray. Amen. Hey, keep your heads bowed. Could you do that? Keep, keep your eyes closed for just a moment. I, I didn't plan this, but we do. You know, about an hour ago, I told the team to get some Bibles out and I put together a little gift and... <clears throat> I just want to know something. I want to give you that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego time. And I know we're a launch team, and I guess people sometimes look around and go, well, everybody here is probably saved. It's a launch team, but never take that for granted. Maybe not. The Bible says even when one sinner comes home, all the angels in heaven rejoice. Did somebody come home just now? Did somebody pray that prayer? Listen, if you did, would you lift your hand? Would you just lift your hand and keep it up high? Thank you so much. I see that hand. I see both those hands. Lift it up high. And if we've got those Bibles and that gift, can you give that to them now? I see them coming forward. There's a, there's a couple of people. Anybody else? Did anybody else put their trust in God? And by the way, thank you for leaving that hand up boldly. Thank you for not 
putting it down or hiding it. That's your Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I want you to know, both of you, I want you to know, in this moment, you just pass from death unto life. You're adopted son and adopted daughter into the family of God. The rest of us, as you look up and two people put their trust in God, would you welcome your brothers and sisters home? Listen, I don't know how long that celebration goes on in heaven, but we did a little bit of clapping and they're partying up there for you that came home. I want you, both of you, to really think and pray about joining with your brothers and sisters in Christ in a small group, a life group, and doing life with us. Gang, there's a lot of work that goes on here at Impact Church, especially this morning because they opened the doors an hour late. And I was watching everybody going, how will they be this morning? Will, will everybody panic and have bad? They, were, they had more fun today running around getting this place all done. Some of you came in late, you didn't even realize that. We had about 45 minutes to get this together. And we did it, and they're, they're just rejoicing and having fun and great at it. We've got something special here. We need to build this team, and we need to get ready. In fact, everybody in ministries here needs to duplicate themselves so that we can launch to the community and see God do the miracle he did this morning over and over and over again, and in bigger groups and at multiple campuses someday. I believe that's what God wants to do through Impact Church. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for how you're moving. Lord, thank you for the simple stories that are so powerful. Thank you for three easy little points, Lord, for your servant Rick Warren, how he looked through this series long before the rest of us and, Father, tracked out even a thing for small groups. This, this whole thing is a beautiful tool, Lord, that I pray our culture and churches and believers will use. God, help us to use this, to invite people to our houses, to encourage people to watch it, and then to come to Impact Church to learn uh, more in depth about these stories and how they relate to our lives. We love you, God. Please continue to move through the people at Impact Church for your glory and honor, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for worshiping with us. See you next week.